Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 214. I'm your host, Derek Moore. With me back once again, Jay, by popular demand, Jay Pestercelli, CEO of Zega Financial, my semi-permanent co-host. How are you doing today, Jay? Doing well, Derek. Popular. You like? You think anybody is asking for me? Is that what you're insinuating? Or is it just, it's popular with you for me to be here? It's, it's uh, both, but uh, people do like... <laughs> When you're on, they like when Mike's on too. They they like, I told you, when we don't necessarily agree on everything that's out there and we take some different opinions. So we'll see how we do today. But yeah, no, it's, you know, it's the banner. All right. So here's something. I don't know if we we disagree on this, Jay, but for the past year, I, I kind of made the comment, hey, if I knew where the dollar was going to go, I could make a pretty good guess on where the equity market's going to go. And I created a chart. And basically, it's kind of interesting. The high in the, in the dollar. And so when I say the, the dollar, it's the U.S. dollar index, which is heavily weighted against the euro and, uh, you know, some of the European countries. But the, the most recent high in the dollar was in September. And, Jay, the S&P 500 was at its lowest point. Some people think it's the trough in the bear market yet to be determined. But... I don't know, Jay. I mean, the dollar is has come down, and and markets have gone up. And I, to me, this is an Oakham's razor thing. Um, and I've been talking about this for a year. But tell me, I'm wrong. Okay. So look, I'm going to give you a few points. You're right, and you, I'm going to say you're a little guilty of a of a chart crime. It's a term we use here uh, within the uh, inner discussions of Zega, where someone makes a chart to make it look like it's their point. You are not, listen, you're not wrong when the dollar, you know, was, was trending up through September of last year, the market was going down, but not at the same angle, right? The market was down, then it was up, then it was down, it was up, and it was down. Like it was, but the dollar had a very nice steady channel to the up. So, and then the dollar is back down. The dollar is actually, according to your chart, right, to the same place where it was a year ago in April 2022. Yet the stock market is not. So while they, there's definitely an inverse correlation, I'm going to tell you that, um, you know, it is definitely not, you know, like a minus 0.8 on the correlation scale if I was using that, right? It's, it's uh, I would say you've got a point, but I'm not exactly bought into it. However, and by the way, I was just being a little uh, uh, argumentative for the peeps. That's what I want to hear. That was just for you. But look, you you and I actually do agree on this, right? On days when the dollar is up, the market tends to be down. You could look at that. I don't I don't know though, Derek, is it the tail wagging the dog with the dollar or is there a different dog in the fixed income market that impacts the dollar that impacts, you know, than the market? Is it like two dogs tied together by a tail? Like I don't know right? It's, there's a relationship there, but like, what is this, right? Is this the pre or the post version of what's making the difference? Is it a dog just running around in circles, chasing a tail? Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's on, and I haven't gone back to the all time high, but even, you know, when the market was 4,500 or so, the dollar was lower than it is today. And I, I think it's, it's less than a coincidence. I there are people who do analytical fundamental valuation. And I think people have the dollar in their models because 
all these multinational companies, and we'll get to some of the biggest companies and their impact on the S&P. But I mean, Jay, if, if revenues are coming from overseas, a strong dollar reduces those foreign sales because when they're brought back to U.S. dollars, it means your revenue is less. Yeah, they report in dollars, right? And they that's report right, in dollars. Dollar. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I get it. I mean, but that's that's like what they say. They you know, the proverbial they say forty percent of revenue of the S and P is now related to some sort of foreign currency, right? That's a pretty big chunk, and so yes, I definitely think it has an impact. You know, a lot of people, you know, think it's like, well, it's you know, the foreign currency, the, the Forex market is a zero sum gain. And while you're making it now or it's costing you now, it can pay you back later. Right. Like, is it I mean, is just is it a wash or does it really trend over time? I think there are levels of inconsequentialness. That's not even a word, but I'm going to go with it. Um, it, where the market isn't different to this. I just made it up. I can do whatever I want. Yeah, it's my podcast. It's episode 214. You can do whatever yeah. you want. Maybe episode one through 10, I can't do that. Episode 214, sure. What I'm saying is, though, <laughs> I don't think you can look at the dollar and say, when it gets here or here, I think it once it passes a certain level, it starts to be a problem. And I think clearly it was at levels where it was a problem. There are other times when the dollar is really weak, and that's that's helpful for international sales. But I think you have this middle range, and I'm not... You know, I mean, I, I can't tell you the exact levels, but I just think it doesn't matter when it's in a certain range, but it matters when it gets really high and it matters when it gets really low. And I think there's a relationship. So that's what I think. Um, there's definitely a, an inverse relationship. You're right. So stronger dollar uh, is typically worse for U.S. stocks. I get that. So let's let's talk about it, like uh, not to, to belabor too long on this. So if the U.S., well, let, let, let me make one more connection, right? I always connect the reason why dollars move uh, has a lot to do with the need, the need to purchase treasuries, U.S. treasuries, because you can't buy treasuries in euros, yen or sterling, right? You have to buy it in dollars. And so when there's demand for U.S. yield, for there's demand for U.S. treasuries, the dollar has to be bought, right? Am I correct on this? No, I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. So now the dollar gets bought. And so that means supply demand, there's less dollars around and the dollar goes up in value because uh, foreign investors want U.S. yield, right? They want, you know, our paper, essentially, right? They like their paper over their paper. However, if the Fed stops raising rates are uh, and I, gosh, I went right into interest rates, didn't I? Like none of our prep talked about interest rates and I went right into it. So my apologies. And it wasn't a lot of prep, but we didn't touch on it. But if the Fed stops and Europe continues to raise rates, because they're still aggressive, right? They're at the 50 basis point uh, range, right? Lagarde raised, raised 50 bips um, last time. So if they continue to raise rates, there will be less demand for the dollar because there will be more demand for yield of uh, European bonds. So is this one of the things that, hey, if U.S. bonds don't look as attractive across the world, that by, in and of itself will help push the stock market higher? Have I connected all those dots properly in your mind? I think so. And I, and I think it goes to the flow of, of currencies. I think it goes to, you know, there's been news about the dollar swaps 
and uh, and some of the things that uh, we'll put all the all three listeners to sleep if we start talking about you know the dollar swap market. But I, I think that's right, and and also just from a trade standpoint, if our dollar is weaker, in theory, uh, our stuff will sell more stuff overseas, and and vice versa. I think you make an interesting point about Europe. I mean, I. You and I, I forget which podcast it was, but I was saying, you know, Powell is probably calling Christine Lagarde saying, hey, come on, like, we're raising rates, you're doing nothing. And this was like a year and a half ago. I mean, come on already. So, yeah, I mean, and and I think currencies also are very related to interest rates, relative interest rates between one another. So, yeah, Jay, I mean, I, I think that's right. And I think uh, if if other parts of the world catch up, we should see the dollar decline. You know, we'll see what happens. But Jay, also, you know, when we think about revenues and we think about margins and dollars and foreign sales. A lot of this comes back to margins. Jay, uh, JP Morgan's Guide to the Market put out their, uh, well, they always put it out every day now. It's a great piece. Their Guide to the Markets, it's a PDF. It's quite voluminous. So I, I'm making up words today. Uh, fourth quarter, though, Earnings, which are, I think we're done. Maybe there's one other company that reported today. I have no idea. Uh, but the fourth quarter, uh, margins, net margins were 10.9%. They were, you know, pushing the upper 13, 13.5%, 13.3%. So they're off their record levels. And I think on a year-over-year basis, so they also have a chart, share of EPS growth. So think about what makes earnings grow. Well, you can have revenues that grow. You can have margins that grow or can compact, I guess, you know, contract. And earnings per share is earnings per the S is share. So if share count goes down and you have the same earnings, your, your earnings per share goes up. Jay, margins in 2022... Uh, contracted 16.4%. Revenue is up 9.6%. Share count went down. And so that actually is a positive for earnings per share growth. All told, earnings per share growth in 2022 was negative 5.5%, 5.6%. Jay, most of this decline was a, was a margin contraction. Margins came down from the record highs. It's It's pretty easy to see. And I guess... You know, next year's earnings estimates, I think, are expecting above a 12% margin. And here in Q4, it was 10.9% margin. So, I don't know. I mean, uh, it to me, inflation helps revenues because uh, it's nominal that we report, not adjusted for inflation. But I don't know. To me, I think this is one of those things that is not being talked about enough. And that's the margin story, Jay. Yeah, I mean, margin, so what are the things that impact margins, right? There's uh, uh, costs, obviously, are a big deal, right? Margin is the amount that you uh, uh, convert off your revenue to earnings, right? So uh, I, when I think about that, right, were costs higher for companies in 2022? Yeah, right? I mean, inflation was there, right? Labor costs, material costs, um, you know, those things were definitely pretty bad. And Nobody should be surprised that we had negative EPS in 2022, right? I mean, this is, uh, it's been talked about for a while. Although I think we talked about, was it last week where we talked about how 
uh, the analysts got it wrong right up until the end, right? How they were still projecting positive uh, uh, growth and then uh, all the way up until uh, January, right? Because we're still talking about the period that ended in December, Q4, the, the fiscal year of 2022. Um, yeah, I mean, so th- this is maybe it was a little bit of a surprise, right? But this is what the market got ahead of when it bottomed out you know, six months ago, if the bo- if that was the bottom. I'm not saying it was, definitely not locking that in for anybody, but uh, that has been the most recent low. And that, here's the data, six months later, uh, the market, uh, you know, got this number, right? Whether it knew it or not. So I don't know, Derek, I think the, 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 the margin contraction is a, is a big deal, but I still think the revenue piece is kind of an equal offset, right? To say that revenue was up 9.6% last year, it's like, wow, we sh- companies did pretty well. And they just made more money because they had to charge more money, but that also is probably reflected into the margin side of it as well. So to me, that's, you know, that's, that's what I look at. They just didn't make enough for what their costs did to them. That's really what I would say. Whenever I ask somebody this question, and you can see it on the chart, but I'm going to go to the average from 2001 through 2021. When I ask people, I say, hey, what's the average annual growth rate of revenue? Nobody gets this. It was actually 3.8% in this case. And I think over the long run, it's more like 3.5%. So that's been the growth, uh, the growth of margins. So I, I let me be careful how I say this. The not like I'm going to say something bad, Jay. Just I have to think about you know we think about right, growth. What's like, he holding up for? Okay, go ahead. Yeah, so margins uh, on average have gotten 5.1 percent better uh, annual annualized from 01 through 21. So there. So let me say it a different way. Their contribution to EPS was a positive because companies were you know doing more with their revenue. Right, margins were good to the tune of adding 5%. Yeah, like let me give you some examples. I mean, like 2012, uh, margins were 9.5%. 2021, they were 13.3%. We just told you, you know, 10.9% was the the margin in, of course, I mean, for anyone out there is like, what, what is margins? You sell something for 100 bucks, it costs you 90 bucks to make the widget. So you make 10 bucks, you have a 10% profit margin. So I know most of the audience is like, I I know that, I know that, but let me make sure everyone's on the same page. So yeah, so margins have been getting better over the years. And some people look at that and they say, well, we have more technology in there. You know, you have companies with don't need, you don't need the the five factories and the thousands of, of employees, but but yeah, Jay, I mean, it, I just think it's it's sort of interesting to look at this. And a lot of the growth has come from margins expanding. Uh, and then, of course, Jay, and the other thing, too, is we, we, we were on it a year and a half ago, the multiple contraction. You know, we're trading it roughly, what, 18 times next year's earnings. We were at 21 or 22 forward earnings that were higher. Remember, we were, we were 22, 21, 22 times forward earnings. 2022 earnings at the at the end of you know December of of uh, 21, and those were really high estimates. So it, we were probably trading close to 30 times actual. I'm, I'm making that up, but I, I'm doing it in my head. Yeah, you know that's a good way to put it. That's new information because we haven't talked about that. 
right? So the market really got it wrong, right? Their estimate on forward earnings and then being willing to put a premium on the market at that high level uh, uh, of, uh, you know, what'd you say it was 21, right? Versus where we are 18. And what is the long-term average? 16? Is that kind of the... I think it's a little higher. It's probably 17 something. I mean, I think we're close. We're close. Well, that multiple, right, is... I always look at the multiple as kind of the appetite for risk, right? And now all of a sudden, when you have a risk-free rate paying you, what's that paying these days? Five, right? Four and a half. You're, you four don't seven, need to yeah, take four, risk. Six, yeah. To, yeah, you don't you don't need to take risk now. So that's always going to help, you know, bring the multiple down, right? So zero rates kind of give you the whole Tina. There is no alternative approach. You got to go to stocks to get your returns. And now you know. There you go. I mean, to, to put this, let me just give you an example. So let's say we're trading at 4000 and we think the market's going to have earnings of $250 over the next year. That's 16 times forward earnings. But if, you know, you're trading at 4000 and your earnings aren't 250 they wind up being 180 well, then you would have been trading at a 22.2x multiple. So anyway. I think, I think we beat this enough, Jay. But the point is, margins. To me, margins are the thing to look at, and I think that has a lot to do with inflation as well. And if we think inflation's done, okay, that's that's one thing. Although, Jay, I'm not sure that everyone's just not raising prices because they because they can. Like you go to some business that really is not affected by inflation, but they're just going to raise their prices because everyone else is. Don't you think that's happening too? I mean, that definitely happened out of the gate, right? Uh, There's a lot of uh, companies that said, you know, the consumer is strong and can absorb higher prices, uh, right? They didn't see that reaction. And I think that's business. We'll do that until a lower player comes in. But like, you know, some businesses can uh, and some businesses can't. Uh, like, let's think about it. I, I, I had this conversation with Mike today your other semi-permanent co-host. Yes. Um, where we talked about airlines. And I was like, let me get this straight. Like tickets now, I don't know if you've, if you've traveled, Derek, maybe not so much, but plane tickets are ridiculous. I, it feels like everybody always says that. I'm like, oh, I remember when tickets were 200 bucks. But in all honesty, it seems like oil is where it is, uh, kind of the, where it was last year, uh, maybe a little less even. Um and, uh, you know, the fleet is what it is. And I'm like, how, how are prices double? It, they just seem to be double. So, you know, though, that's a, that's, uh, you know, that's an industry that will charge when they can, because sometimes they get squeezed pretty badly, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I can't explain why margins on airlines, uh, you know, require a higher level of, uh, uh, you know, of a ticket charge these days than a year ago, two years ago. And I just, I don't get it. I don't get why it's higher. The labor cost is not that much higher, right? Uh, I don't believe. So what's the other input? The the, the equipment, rental Most at demand. the airport. Everybody yeah, was locked up for two years. They're like, I'm going yeah, somewhere. So they're filling planes and they're charging more. I have not been on an, I, I haven't been on a plane with any empty seats in at least a year, right? They're They're all packed. So it is a demand thing, right? So I think you're right there. So they could charge more. Yeah, I would also say since nine eleven, pre nine eleven, I don't know about you, but you know, traveling for for business, I remember getting like whole rows to myself. There'd be empty planes, and, and 
And airlines used to run those routes where they really didn't fill up the planes. They seemed to do a better job of, of really, like, I'll, I'll give you an example. There used to be like 20 flights a day, I feel like, between Phoenix and LA. And then later on, I remember looking and it's slowly but surely, like the number of flights that, that went between the two cities just dropped because you, you drop the capacity, you increase the demand. But anyway, all right. So let me get to this other thing because I think this is pretty cool and no one, no one ever really talks about this. And what am I going to tell you about? Well, uh, Sam Rowe on Twitter had put something out and he said, okay, the S&P 500 index turnover uh, crept into the headlines again. And what he was explaining was Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank were members of the S&P 500. They were part of the index. On March 15th, both stocks were dropped from the S&P 500. They were replaced by Insulet and Bunge. I have no idea what those companies do or if I'm pronouncing the, the names right, but welcome to the S&P. And then from a regular quarterly rebalancing on March 20th, uh, FICO, Fair Isaac, sounds like a credit reporting agency, replaced Lumen Technologies. And you might say, okay, that's not that interesting. But remember, the S&P is an index and the index is made up of all of these different companies. And so when you think about like, what's the market cap of the S&P, it's probably something like, you know, 30 something trillion dollars. And all of the earnings by all of those companies, and you know, the S&P of course is a weighted index. Apple and Microsoft and Google have a higher weighting in the market because they have a higher market cap, the number of shares times your price of your stock. But all of the earnings, all of the revenues, all that stuff is aggregated together. And then you wind up with what we were just talking about. What's the earnings per share of the S&P? What's the revenue per share of the S&P? Things like that. So I did a, a quick back of the napkin calculation, Jay, and I said, what's the difference in revenue, in share count, in net income of taking out those three companies and putting in three new companies? And all I did was I looked at, you know, 2022 full year earnings for these. And it was interesting. By swapping those out, you actually take off 860 million shares. So you, you reduce the share count. And then you reduce, or you actually increase the revenue by about 44 billion. You increase the net income by 741 million. And... You know, that actually, an analyst, by the way, like they, they know this. It's not like I'm talking about it on the podcast and the head of Goldman Sachs's, uh, you know, research division doesn't know that there are changes to the S&P. But this does sort of impact a little bit on some level, the, the per share numbers that we all see. So I don't know. I just, I thought it was interesting to bring this up, Jay, and no one ever really talks about this. Yeah, so the construction of the index itself will change the fundamental data of the index, right? Based, that's what you're saying, right? That's you've right. You impacted the number of shares, you impacted the revenue, you've impacted the margin by swapping out the components. Now, arguably, um, with Silicon Valley and uh, Signature Bank, their numbers would have had a bigger impact in here, right? I mean, is that the point of the swap out, right? Your numbers are kind of pre-failure of those two banks. Am I correct on that? 
guess the share count is what it is, but the revenue is gone, right? So that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So the share count, that's a nice change. The revenue. So still better to put a stronger company in than than leave the weaker company in. But it looks like it will have a, you know, an interesting, you know, impact on um on earnings per share and because of both the share count and the revenue. This is peanuts compared to the whole market. I mean, Apple bought back $89 billion worth of stock last year. Apple's net income was in the billions of dollars, you know. So to add uh, $740 million of net income just by swapping these out, assuming they do the same thing that they did last year, this year. But it's, it's interesting. Um, but the big companies still have an outsized role to play in. You know, J.P. Morgan's income and revenue is massive compared to some of these other companies towards the bottom end of the range, you know? Compared to Bunge? We got to look at Bunge. Bunge? I'll tell you what Bunge is. Bunge is Ticker BG. BG, right? BG. Now, look, now we're on the fly typing in BG in our platform. But no, all- no, I wrote it down. I, I didn't give it to you. Seven, $67 billion was their revenue. $1.6 billion was their net income. So that's a, that's a really strong company. I, I, I shouldn't say it's a strong company. Like, I have no idea what they do. I really don't. But I'm saying you're bringing in $1.6 billion of net income if they do the same thing they did in, in uh, 22 and 23. Yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, it's... Let's go bunch. Yeah. Now, Silicon Valley Bank, by the way, had $1.5 billion in net income. So I guess it's sort of a swap when you, when you look at it that way. Is, is this like uh, in the NFL draft, you know, the last... You know the 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 five hundredth and the five hundred first because there's five hundred and one stocks in the S P five hundred. Are they like? Uh, do you think of them as like Mister Irrelevant or uh, in in the NFL draft? Right, the last player drafted isn't that uh, the the Mister Irrelevant? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mister Irrelevant, I believe, took uh, the the 49ers to the playoffs, didn't he last year? Yeah, and but and, and look, I, you and I have no. No uh, dog in the hunt. Is that it? With when it comes to the 49ers, we're we're uh, but no. But for his injury in the first drive, I mean, who knows? Who knows? I mean, the guy gets hurt, uh, blows out his elbow like a pitcher. Um, all right. So anyway, I'm going to move on from this, but I, I think it's something that's never talked about, and really. You know, whenever I think of you talking about indexes, I always think about your, you know, trivia question you ask of, all right, uh, what, you know, was the number one stock in the NASDAQ 100, you know, back in 2001, right? And every, you know, because it's a very different composite, but that that process of managing the indexes, well, if anybody, I'm, I'm deliberately pausing to give people a chance to think of the answer if they haven't heard it already. I believe you've asked that question on this pod. We've probably done done a podcast entirely on that. Yeah. You want to give the answer as the largest allocation of the NASDAQ 100 in the year, was it 2000? Uh, Sirius Satellite Radio. Yeah. It was like 9% of the index, right? Bigger than Apple, bigger than Microsoft. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Think about that. <laughs> And so just indexing is just a very normal thing with the swapping of stocks. And that's part of the reason why, you know, that methodology of, you know, dropping the underperforming stocks and replacing uh, with the better performing stocks is part of the reason why indexes do what they do. Right. That's actually an investment philosophy that I think a lot of people just think it's static. It's not. And I think you're pointing out something very interesting that when you do the swap, you actually impact the fundamental data that comes out of that index. So 
you know. You do. Now, I, I will say, Jay, that the, so they have a committee, the S&P, and they decide what goes into it. And, you know, there's some criteria, like I think they have to be profitable over the last quarter or two quarters before they go into an index. That was a bit, like with Tesla, that was a big deal where, where Tesla had to have those positive quarters. And you might say, well, wait a second, what happens to the S&P through changes? Nothing really. And the reason is they smooth out the index and they use what's called a divisor. And so rather than have, you know, the S&P be like, okay, it's $32 trillion today because that's the market cap. Well, that they, they use a divisor and the divisor is what they divide the market cap, I think, by to get the index level. But when companies have splits, when you have you know, one company buys another, Tesla goes in, and Tesla was a pretty big market cap. They don't want um, the index to jump just from any changes. And so they, they adjust the divisor to smooth out the index. So it's actually kind of interesting how they, how they do that. But anyway, that's, uh, that's a little indexing 101. Yeah, indexes are interesting, right? And the, the Dow does a completely different set of math, right? It's based on share price. So it's completely different than the way that the S&P The does. weighting. No, that's right. Yeah. Jay, speaking yeah. of indexes, though, I, I thought it was interesting. And you mentioned you saw it on CNBC. I, haven't, I hadn't seen it. And it's where the returns have come from this year. You know, the S&P is up year to date. And uh, let me just find my, my doc that uh, I'm looking at this. Yeah. So Meta, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Google – it, they are up this year, but if you take those companies out of the S&P 500, I think the S&P would be flat. So like the remaining, there's actually 505 companies, I think, in the S&P right now. Because, you know, you have Google A and B or two share classes. Yeah, you may be right. I'm not sure. I think it's five. Yeah, it's more than 500. We both agree on that. I think it's 505, according to S&P Global's website. But, you know, what do they know, right? You know. <laughs> I mean, it's only their index. <laughs> Maybe they know something. Anyway, but I mean, it's, Jay, most of this happens. Um, it's these five companies that are driving all the returns. and So, yes, they, but th- this is not unusual where, you know, big tech pulls up the whole S&P, right? It was a, it was a dig on indexing through, you know, 2017, 2018, 2019, that it was just five stocks that really drove all performance. This is this is not new, in my opinion. Uh, although I'm looking at it, thinking, "Where's Nvidia?" Because that is at a rocket year. Where's Tesla? That's had a rocket year so far. So, like, I don't know. Like, who who put this data together, Derek? I think it's Goldman Sachs. Again, Goldman Sachs. We kind of talk with those guys. I don't know who's, who's <laughs> sure. I'm sure I must know more than Goldman Sachs at this point. Um, I always say. Yeah, I, I forget the gentleman. Is it Cost, Coster or Costner? Um, is their chief economic or chief strategist? And I always say, uh, I, I, I'm sure he knows more than I because Goldman's decided to make him their chief strategist instead of me, if for nothing else. Uh, but did you apply? Like, did you even throw your name in the hat? Well, see, that might be the issue. Maybe right. That, maybe like, you don't issue. know. You don't know. You Jay, to your more... point, though, like, this is why <laughs> yeah. you buy an index. Like, who why cares? Buy an index? Yeah, this is yeah. You buy it, and the return comes from where it comes, and that's great. And if if it goes up, you're happy about it. 
I don't know. I mean, and part of the way you look at this, you say, well, okay, does that mean the remaining companies have room to run? Or, I mean, I, I don't have, I haven't done that level of analysis, but um, great. And last year, these companies were were bad. I think, you know, Mick was pointing out our, who runs our, our trading, a member of the investment committee today. Uh, he had put something out this morning in, uh, we were talking as a group and, you know, I think it's Amazon and oh, I'll get it in a second. But yeah, I think Amazon, who was the other one? And how much more they have to go, right? So the point was that they're not even close to kind of get, the, you know, getting yeah, to where yeah. they were in the middle of last year, right? Yeah, I think so Microsoft needs 23%. Amazon needs 80% more. Google needs 50%. And Apple needs 12%. Meta needs 83%. So these companies are still, you know, Meta and and, uh, and Amazon especially are really far down from their all-time highs. Um, but they got pummeled last year. That's the point. And so we've had some recovery from those. I don't know what's going to happen in the next 12 months. I'll let you know when it happens. But Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I'm, I, I am. I'm, I'm like, I'm going to call a little bogus on this data point. But it has been big tech pulling up. Uh, the S&P, the NASDAQ just had one of its best quarters since what, 2010, right? Like who, everybody was, 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 you know, putting uh, big tech for dead, counting big tech for dead and saying, ah, that's over. There's going to be a rotation. These are the years value is coming back. Sorry, Mike. I know you talk about value quite a bit. I'm going to bash it while you're not here to defend it because I'm not fair like that. Uh, but, you know, like, look, I mean, that this quarter is telling a different story and, you know, I was looking at NVIDIA. It's gone from 142 to 277 at close today, Friday, the last day of March, Friday, March 31st. You know, like that's almost 100 percent. Right. Don't don't tell me big tech is dead and don't tell me that's not impacting the growth of, all, of the overall market. And those stocks do bring it up. And you're right. It's the benefit of index. It's why we use indexes versus trying to pick stocks, because you're usually dealing with old news and there's a lot of information. And when a stock catches fire. You may not know right away. I forget who said it, Jay, but, uh, you know, with the, the AI thing and, and some of the chips, it sounds like a lot of people on CNBC were pointing to NVIDIA. Like, is NVIDIA the Levi's? Le- NVIDIA to AI is what Levi's was to the gold rush. Okay. It's not the, I think it's you, not the primary thing. How about like it's Cisco the to thing. the internet? Can we do, I'd like to pick one of the no, FedEx, no, I mean, but FedEx I, to the I internet mean, of uh, shopping, right? Yes, I got no, you. but like everyone made the money off off selling to the people who were looking for gold versus everyone who went bust once the gold rush went bust, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's why AMD did so great with the crypto mining, right? You're right. Like you could have like it. It is that is and listen, I don't know. I can't speak to the the technical details of an Nvidia chip. I've always thought of them as great graphics cards, right? But they've, they've clearly expanded past that. But I don't know why NVIDIA is better than, you know, uh, Texas Instruments when it comes to making chips for for, for uh, artificial intelligence. But that has been the, the thought. They're the one that will be the tool that all AI programmers uh, need to create the capacity. It's always interesting. Yeah, who knows? Um, by the way, this is why, you know, you and I always say we buy, but we hedge. Uh, we tend to buy indexes like the S&P 500. We look to get the majority of that return or, you know, depending upon the strategies we run. Uh, 
and then we we have either downside buffers or hedges. And so, I mean, this this is you never know who's going to be the leading, you know, uh, the horse in in the race, and you, you got them all. So, and and by the way, Jay, I will just say, you know, at the end of the year, if you would have said, "Hey, what's going to do the best the first quarter?" I'd be hard pressed to get anybody to tell me, oh yeah, it's going to be Meta, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Google, and, and NVIDIA. Yeah, NVIDIA is going to be up close to 100% Q1. I, I don't know if anyone was making that call, right? <laughs> uh, so I'm sure somebody, and they feel great right now. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and look, we, you and I always talk about, ooh, net interest margin, rates are good for banks, and banks happen to be now like, you know, the sector that is like scaring everybody, right? You're right. It's hard to know. Right. It's hard to know the the, uh, uh, the outcomes of sectors or individual stocks. So, you know, like, why not just index? I know it seems like lazy. It's not. It's, you know, if, what's the statistic I've, I've heard? And I've seen data on this after a five year period, 95 percent of professional money managers do not beat the S&P 500. So it's almost like you got the answers to the test. Just use them. Use, use something like the S&P. It's okay. It's fine. It's, I don't think you know getting it right better than most people who get paid to do it all day is a is is you know is bad. You're trying to make you know trying to generate returns, trying to create some level of predictability within a portfolio, so you can have goals and you can manage your risk. All of those great things. Picking stocks, you could find yourself uh, left behind. But an index, as we started out talking about it, will rotate out those bad stocks for you. You know, we always, the market has always, and I guess it's yet to see uh, after this decline, the market has always historically come back and made new highs, given enough, enough time, and it has. You can't say that for an individual company. Plenty of companies do not retake their, new, their old highs when you give them more time. Plenty of them just don't exist anymore, right? So using indexes is another way to avoid getting stuck in, you know, a loser that's going to take you down with it. You mean like Sirius Satellite that's trading at $3.97 right now? largest allocation in the NASDAQ 100, yes. Let me, let me just put, put a little color on that, Jay. March 3rd of 2000, Sirius Satellite was trading at $63.25. Today it's trading at $3.97. I mean, wow. picking well, stocks is hard. But if you know if you own the Nasdaq 100 index from that time, I mean it, it took some time to come back, but eventually it did. Um, I'm just looking at a let me let me just pull up the Nasdaq 100 chart. Same same sort of time period. Yeah, I mean it took a while here you to go. retake those uh, 2,000 highs, but it did. It did. It did. But here here beginning of March, it was it was 45, 80, you know, right around there. It got back to 4580 sometime in 2016, I think. Yeah, in 20 sometime in 2016. And today it's 13,181. Sirius Satellite was $65. Today it's 397. I have no idea about their financials. I haven't looked at that company. I used to have one in my car. But just I have to, it just, in three cars. I still yeah. pay for it. I love it. Yeah. Well it's, nation. There you go. Hair Nation, yeah, there's a good recommendation if, if you're uh, 1980 <laughs> yeah, heavy, you heavy metal. You can tell a lot by a person when you look at the stations they have kind of marked uh, for their uh, satellite radio. Yeah, 
No, no doubt. One, la- one last thing I'll mention before we do get to our recommendations for the week is I think sometimes people are too antsy or impatient to have markets get back to an all-time high. The market peak of 47.97 occurred in January of 22. JP Morgan's Guide to the Markets has this uh, this graph and it says, okay, what type of return in the next one year period would you need to get from where we were now to the all-time high? And it's going to be a little less because the market was up the past two days since they ran this. But you need, you know, 20.8%. So if you get that, you get an all-time high. If it takes two years, okay, all you need is 10.9%. I shouldn't say all, but you need 10.9% average annualized return. If it takes three years, 7.7% return. Jay, I mean, it, I don't think, who knows when we'll get an all-time high again, but like two years at close to 11% annualized return, that's pretty good. But a lot of people would say, are you comfortable, you know, are you, would you be okay having to wait two years for an all-time high? And they'd be really impatient. I don't know. I just think sometimes perspective is needed. Well, let me throw a different perspective out at you. That, here we go. So would you rather be in the stock market over the next three years and, you know, hoping to get, what was the number you said, seven and a half, 7.7 to get back to the all-time high? Or buy a treasury that, you know, has significantly less risk and is probably going to pay you, you know, just under half that. But that's the math that people have to, are thinking about because there's an alternative now to stocks, right? So food for thought. Some people probably take that, right? If it's going to take four or five years, and you've made the case on a previous podcast how it could take, you know, not, that's not your opinion, but you've made the fundamental, you've shown the fundamental data that it could take four or five years to get back to the previous high. Well, maybe it's better to have a treasury that during that time period, take risk off the table. There's plenty of people that I know uh, that we manage money for, you and I, that have gone that route. And they say, look, I just, I don't know what's in store when it comes to the stock market. Maybe, maybe I should be in something like treasuries for a little while till, you know, this all clears. And about, I didn't even know what that means till this all clears, but everybody has their own kind of definition. So, you know, it's an alternative thought there. Um, it's not the one we typically take, right? Um, I definitely don't want to. Well, hedged equity is really where, where we live. and and Right. So why yeah. not take it in a way where you've protected against that downside and still have the upside to get those years where you can get a you know 10 or 20% return? But it's just Agreed. It's the thought process that we recognize that's going on out there right now. So if you've thought about it, great. You're thinking about it. It's something that, you know, they should have a conversation with you about. I would say... Yeah. The fact, 2020, when we went from the lows and we got an all-time high, two days later, I'm, I'm making that up. You know, the all-time high was was reached that year again. That that just doesn't happen. Uh, but I think some people are, are conditioned from that. All right, Jay, let's transition to, I think we have a joint recommendation this week. And I, I gave this as a pre-recommendation three weeks ago in anticipation of it coming out. But I'll let you, uh, I'll let you run with this one. I mean, it, it's succession. I can't believe we even forgot to mention it last week. It's one of our favorite shows. Uh, succession is back out. First episode, probably by the time the podcast comes out, the second episode will have already been out. And uh, I know we were both uh, pleased with the way that the first episode <laughs> went. Uh, how, you know, dysfunctional the family is, is always entertaining and, you know, the business aspect of it. And yes, 
succession is the strong recommendation for both of us. I almost wish, Jay, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously I've been watching every episode as they come, and this is year four. This is going to be the last season, uh, as far as I know. But doesn't part of you wish you could just sit down this weekend and, and just go through three full years of watching that, how enjoyable that would be just to binge that? I really should have binged it before. Like I said to, uh, I said to my wife, I was like, we should have, we should have watched the last, at least the last couple episodes before this one launched. But I picked right up where it left off. But yes, of course, it's, it's definitely worth binging. Definitely. I watched the last episode of last year right before I watched the new episode. I think HBO had it on right before. So I watched that and it's every bit as good as I remembered it for sure. Um, <laughs> good. Although Jay, you might remember um, you and, and, uh, and Mick and, you know, Wayne back then were like, how have you never watched Game of Thrones? I never watched it. And I think I watched the whole season, every season uh, in the space between whatever the, the second to last season and, and the last season, but I had never seen it. You guys would talk about this, like the, the white walkers or the whatever people. And I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Whatever people. Yes. You've, now you've just alienated half your audience. No, I loved it. I watched it. I binged it, but that was, that's what I'm saying. Like, I think about that. You had to wait six months in between the finales HBO is like, would you like to watch the next episode? Yeah, I would like to find out exactly what happened right now. And I just went right into it. So it's fantastic. No, I know, uh, it was more. It was a year and six months that we were waiting between those final seasons. It was torture. But I have, uh, I don't know if I'm proud to say this or embarrassed to say this. I've actually watched every episode in, you know, start to finish three times. I've gone through the thing three times. Once for myself, once because I really enjoyed it the second time. And I'm once with my son. So, <laughs> well, I, you know, if, I, I think if you haven't seen that, uh, it's, yeah, I mean, that you might as well have been. So, if you haven't seen Succession, if you haven't seen Game of Thrones, that's obviously two things. But yeah, Game of Thrones is, I can't wait to see how they land the plane and close out the series because uh, I'm, I'm sure it's Succession. Good, but yeah, it's yeah. Succession. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. Succession. All right, Jay. All right. I think we've uh, we've solved the problems of the investment world. It's all good, and uh, you know, Jay Powell is yet to, uh, to to talk to us, but he said the the banking system is sound and resilient. Um, those are the words that they're using. So, all right, we'll wait to see what happens. Jay, thanks again for coming on. Thanks, Derek. Have a good one. All right, see everyone.